0: We are now in lesson 28 of the study of Romans. And what we saw last week was that there was a wave of anti-Semitism that swept through Rome under the emperor Claudius in the 40s, common era. Now, one would think that worshippers of the Messiah Yeshua would be immune to anti-Semitism. But... When we looked at Paul saying things like this in the book of Romans to these Gentiles, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought. And don't boast over the natural branches or the Jewish people. We can see that that is not the case. And when we looked at some of the church writings, we found that that wave of anti-Semitism in the Roman church continued right up through the Middle Ages and beyond. The letter to the Romans is being written around 55 to 58 common era. And this is the problem that Paul is addressing. You know, every time I've gone through the book of Romans, I always thought, there's something missing here. There's something that I don't understand here. But when I saw this information about the Emperor Claudius and this wave of anti-Semitism, the whole letter just fell into place. When Paul donates three chapters of the book of Romans explaining the Jewish people's place in the plan of God and states that the Gentiles of Rome are thinking more highly of themselves than they ought and that they're boasting over the natural branches, it's not hard to see the purpose of the letter anymore. And toward the end of the message last week, we we spoke about how Priscilla and Aquila the Jew... Returned to Rome after a five year exile, and now they were meeting in their own home. And I said I, that I felt it was because they were uncomfortable with the congregation when they returned due to foods, days of worship, and this conceit on the part of these Roman Gentiles. Now, people might say, well, why would they be uncomfortable with these Roman Gentile believers? And the answer, of course, would be Aquila and the other Jewish believers kept Torah. And the new Gentiles had forsaken those things. During the years that the Jewish people had been expelled from Rome, these Gentiles were left without guidance of those who began these congregations. And when the Jewish people returned, these Gentiles were eating meat that was possibly offered to idols. They were keeping days of worship that were foreign to the Bible. And they were conceited and unteachable. And so Jewish believers like Aquila began to meet in their own home. And the reason is they followed Torah. They followed the customs of the Jewish people. And they were subject to the same anti-Semitism as the rest of the Jewish people. And some would say, well Stan, that's a reach. But I say that because I think we can show that it was just not the Jewish people who'd, who didn't accept Yeshua who were targets of this anti-Semitism and this anti-Torah mentality, but it was also those who believe. If we go back to the early second century church writings again, and we look at a quote from one of the church fathers, we can see that by that time, anti-Semitism was taking aim at the Jewish people who had accepted Yeshua as the Messiah, and were following Torah. In this quote that I'm going to read, is a quote, Justin Martyr is asked by Trifo, if the Jews who believe in Yeshua and still live as Jewish people, if they are in fact saved. Let's read as these two debate over the Jewish believers and their Torah observance. It says, And Trifo inquired again, but if someone, knowing that this is so, after he recognizes that this man is Christ, and has believed in and obeys him, wishes, however, to observe these institutions, will he be saved? I said, in my opinion, Trifle, such a one will be saved if he does not strive in every way to persuade other men, I mean those Gentiles who have been circumcised from error by Messiah, to observe the same things as himself, telling them that they will not be saved unless they do wish to observe such institutions as were given by Moses along with their hope in this Messiah. Yet choose to live as Christians and faithful, then I hold that we ought to join ourselves to such and associate with them in all things kinsmen and brethren. So what many Christians don't know is that there's a traceable Messianic Jewish movement To the east of Rome that kept the Sabbath, that kept the festivals and the dietary laws and what they could of the rest of the Torah right up until the 4th century. And then they suffered under Rome the same as the Jewish people because of their Torah observance and their keeping of many of the traditions of the Jewish people. They too were ostracized by the Roman church. In fact, this group disappears from history after Constantine makes keeping the Sabbath and the festival of Passover a crime in the church and in Rome. And so what I was trying to say last week is the reason Priscilla and Aquila were meeting in their own home very well may have been they no longer met with these Roman assemblies because they... We're now very Gentile communities and failed now to keep the minimums of Torah observance outlined in Acts chapter 15. And let me say something about the rest of the study of the book of Romans. If you weren't here for lessons 25, 26, and 27, you need to get to the library, you need to get to the resource center, and you need to get those CDs because there's no way you're going to understand the rest of the book unless you understand those... Three lessons. One more thing about this passage. You want you to notice I underline, they're saved if. Don't you love it? I said this guy has never read the Bible. Paul told us that we are saved by grace and not by works, and yet Justin adds an if. If you don't teach men to obey Torah, then you are saved. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how some in the church can wink at sin, but if they find out that you're keeping the Sabbath and the festivals, they separate you themselves from you as if you were the devil himself. And for those things, for keeping the Sabbath and the festivals, they think you're going to hell. But for a sexual immoral person sitting next to them in the pew, they say nothing. Well, what you see is the root of that anti-Torah thought way back here in the 2nd century already. So now, we've come to chapter 9 and verse 6, really. But I want to start today just by reading from verse 1 for continuity because you can't lose continuity when you're reading through this book. It says, I'm telling you the truth in Messiah. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Messiah for the sake of my brethren and my kinsmen according to the flesh who are the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the temple service and the promises who are the fathers and from whom Messiah according to the flesh who is over all. God be blessed forever. Amen. Now, we looked at this last week, and Paul is telling these non Jewish believers that the Jewish people are as loved by God as they are. In chapter 8, he told these Gentiles that they were adopted as sons. He told them that God foreknew them, that God predestined them to become conformed to the image of Messiah. And that these whom he predestined he also called, and those he called he justified, and those he justified he glorified. That's what he told these Gentiles at the end of chapter 8. Well, he just told them at the start of chapter 9 the same thing of the Jewish people who don't accept Yeshua as the Messiah. He said, look, you are boasting over those who are loved by God in the same way he loves you, but he expressed that love to his Jewish people long before you. Because... God's order is to the Jew first and then to the non-Jew. He's saying, hey, all of those things I said about you, about being adopted as sons, that you had received, well, the same is true of the Jewish people. Also, God foreknew them. God predestined them. He called them. He glorified them. He's telling them this because of their mistreatment of the Jewish people due to their conceit and their boasting. With all of that said, Paul, like any good teacher, he's going to anticipate the next question from his audience that he's writing to. And what would be the natural question? Well, you can almost hear those Gentiles say, if all of this is true and the, of the Jewish people, why is it then that the majority of the Jewish people who don't know Messiah as we Gentiles do? Why is it that we're justified before God and they're not? Did the promises of God in his word fail on the part of the Israel, the Jewish people? And so he's going to answer that question next. And the fact is he's going to spend all of chapters 9, 10, and 11 answering that question. And in summary of all of this, at the end of chapter 11, he says this in verse 25. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Brothers, so that you may not be conceited, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles come in. And so, all Israel will be saved. The conclusion is, all Israel will be saved. That's the short answer to the question. But now he's going to spend the next three chapters going over the long answer to the question. And he ends it with Don't be conceited, God is not done with Israel. They have only experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has been grafted in. And then all Israel will be saved. And we're going to speak about just what is all Israel a little bit later today. Now I read that so that as we continue... We are sure of the point he's trying to make in chapters 9, 10, and 11. As we read these next chapters, we certainly don't want to make the same mistake the church has made through the years and make the next few verses an anti-Semitic rant. Listen to what verse 6 says. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your offspring will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. So, what does he say? Did God fail concerning the Jewish people? Did the promises of God to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob concerning the blessing of their offspring fail? Well, no. God made promises to Abraham, but the ultimate fulfillment of those promises will be according to the calling and the election of God. Not according to tracing one's ancestry back to Abraham, but according to the call of God. And before we get to, into his arguments, I'm going to say this. And I will be the first to say this. I think Paul could have said this a whole lot clearer than this. And this whole section has been twisted by the church throughout the centuries by the advocates of replacement theology. And here's how replacement theology would interpret this passage. They assign the Jewish people and the church to the characters that he's speaking of. The Jewish people become Ishmael, and the church is Isaac. And so the church is the election of God. In the same way, when we get in a few minutes looking at 10 through 12, the Jewish people become Esau, and heaven forbid, the church becomes Jacob. How can that be? And so, the Jewish people have been replaced by the church. And with that um, information, you can understand why I called the replacement theology the brother of anti-Semitism. So let's not make that mistake as we look. Now, as I said, he could have been heavy-handed here. He could have said this a whole lot plainer and a whole lot clearer and not tiptoed, as it were. However, we have to remember that he's speaking to a group of people he doesn't know. He's writing this letter to people he's never seen. And he's unsure of how they're going to take this letter defending the Jewish people. He's also trained in rabbinic thought. And rabbis of the day would never render an opinion without a scriptural basis. And so he goes back to Abraham. So to answer that question, he says, not all who are descended from Jacob are Israel. And I say Jacob because you have to understand the first use of Israel in the verse as Jacob. Not everyone descended from Jacob is truly the election of God is what he's saying. And that's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about the church and the Jewish people. He's talking about the Jewish people. How does he establish that? It is the election of God and not ancestry that determines the election. Well, he uses Abraham and the promise that comes through Abraham to bless his offspring. But are all the offspring, are all the descendants of Abraham, uh, are all of his offspring the election and the recipients of the promise? Well, no, Abraham's firstborn was Ishmael. And Ishmael is not the one who received the promise given to Abraham and then to Isaac. It was given to Isaac. You see, God had already chosen Isaac before either of them were born. God determined who would receive the promises and the election before these children had done a thing. And so Paul is saying only the election, only the sovereignty of God determines who receives the promises. And what does he do for his next example? In verse 10 he says, not only this, but there was Rebekah also. And when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for through the twins, though the twins were not yet born and had and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's promise according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Again, he uses the birth of Jacob and Esau to show that it's not the birthright. But it's the election, the choice of God. And again, if we look at these two, Jacob uh, Jacob and Esau, we find that the firstborn ends up on the short stick of the blessing. He ends up on the short end of the blessing. If we look at Jacob and Esau, it's not hard for us to see that Esau was father's favorite. Right? I think the Bible's pretty clear about that. And he was certainly the one who was going to receive the blessing if everything was left up to Isaac. And if we look at the two, we can certainly see why we're told, because we're told Jacob was a man of the tent. And I, you know, I know the rabbis teach that when he says a man of the tents, he means he, he spent his time poring over Torah. I don't think that's what it means. I think it means he was a mama's boy. But Esau, well, he was a man's man. This man was a hunter. If he lived here in Minnesota, he'd be chomping at the bit for the fishing opener, saying, Dad, let's go fishing. (laughs) He'd be the one who was polishing the guns and the bows, saying, Dad, let's go hunting. So again, he's loved by his father Isaac because he's the firstborn. He's a mighty hunter, a man's man. But God said, the older, Esau, will serve the younger. And later he says... Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Again, all of this was determined before they were born, before they did a thing. The point being, it's purely the election and the choice of God. Now, as I said, many in the church interpreted this, these verses to mean something like the Jewish people are Ishmael, And the church is Isaac and the Jewish people are Esau and the church is Jacob. And so God is done with the Jewish people and now we're the elect. Hence, God is finished with the Jewish people. Well, that's not true and we would have realized that if we wouldn't have forgotten that he's talking about Jewish people alone here and not the church and we would have... Not come to that conclusion if we would have kept in mind what we read earlier. I don't want you to be ignorant of the mystery, brothers. So that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles comes in. Then all Israel will be saved. So what Paul is saying is that Israel is all about God's election. And not all Jewish people are part of Israel. But all Israel will be saved. So, what does it mean? What does it mean if you're one of these that Paul's writing to and you're boasting over the Jewish people as a whole? Well, I can tell you what it means. You're boasting over, if you're boasting over the Jewish people as a whole, it's obvious that you're boasting over some of the very elect. If you're boasting over some Jewish people but not others, then you become the judge as to who the election of God is. And who the election of God isn't. And I'll tell you what. I don't want to be putting myself in the place of the judge. Or God. So the point is. Don't boast. Over anyone. Because you don't know. So Paul says. Not all Israel or Jacob is Israel or the elect. So. Of those descended from Jacob. Who is Israel? Well, if we look at the story of Jacob, we can find out what Paul meant. Let's go down and look at the story of Jacob. Let's go to chapter 32 and verse 24. It says, "'So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And the man said, "'Let me go, for it is daybreak.' But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man said to him, What is your name? Jacob, he replied. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. This passage is a study in itself, but let's just look at the short of it today and we'll get an idea of what Paul is speaking about. Now, we already established that Jacob was God's chosen to receive the blessing given to Abraham and to Isaac. But did Jacob get the name Israel for that reason? No. The text is clear. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with men and with God, and you have overcome, and the key word in the passage is overcome. He gets his name Israel because he overcame. And if we're going to understand this passage, the very first thing we need to understand is, who is this guy wrestling with? Who's Jacob wrestling with? Well, it's not too hard if Jacob received a new name and the one who gave it to him didn't ask anybody else. He just says, your name will be Israel. You have to ask yourself, what man can give you a new name? What man can give you a new name? Because I can tell you, if I were to go up to Steve and say, Steve, your name will no longer be Steve, but Israel. I can guarantee you that I don't think that his next check written to the mortgage company would be signed Israel in Drizzy. <laughs> right? But this man gave Jacob a new name that went with him for the rest of his life. And not only that, his descendants are called Israel. And not just that, he will forever be known as Israel. From this day forth, God calls him Israel in the rest of the Bible. So the point is, the name stuck. And again, this man didn't ask anybody for permission to change Jacob's name, and yet from this time forward, even God calls him Israel. Now, you only have to ask yourself, what man can give you a new name and have it stick throughout eternity? Well, there's only one man I know of, and that's Yeshua. The next clue we get to as who he's wrestling with is, is in verse 30. It says, and Jacob called the place Peniel. Saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And the sun rose above him as he passed through Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. And notice what Jacob says of the man. He says, I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And so again, what man do we know that when you saw him, you saw God? Well, the book of Hebrews answers the question for us right in chapter 1. It's the very first point he makes. He says, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And so again, we must reason that the man, the messenger in the passage that wrestled Jacob was a pre-incarnate Yeshua the Messiah. Now the key word, as I said here, is that he struggled with God and he overcame. The key word, overcome. And it comes from the Hebrew root word Yakol. And it means, I put it up here for you, overcome, have power, prevail. The Greek equivalent of that word, yakol, is nikao. And it means conquer, overcome, prevail. Now, if we look at the use of this word, this Greek word, in our New Covenant Scriptures, uh, we're going to find out what it means to be Israel. The text says your name is Israel because you overcome. Now John uses this word throughout his writings. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4 says this. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Yeshua is the Son of God. So here John tells us the one who are overcomers and how they overcome. They are those who are born or we could say reborn of God and those who have overcome the world. And how do they overcome the world? They believe in Yeshua, the Son of God. Right? So what is the reward of those who overcome? Well, again, John uses this word extensively and he uses it quite a bit in the book of Revelation. He tells, when he speaks to the churches, he tells us over and over, what is the reward of those who overcome? And I'm going to read this, a few passages from Revelation, this time from, I want to read it from Gruber's translation of what we call the New Testament, which he more accurately calls the Messianic writings. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7 says, The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the community. To the one who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the middle of my garden, the garden of my God. The reward for those who overcome through the faith in the Messiah Yeshua are they are going to receive from the tree of life in the garden of Eden, Gan Din. You see, they're going to have a place in the world to come. The kingdom, the messianic kingdom, they're going to have a seat at the messianic banquet. Just as Jacob overcame He's going to have a seat at the messianic banquet right at the front of the table with his Abraham and Isaac. Let's look at another. This is verse 17 of chapter 2. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the communities. To the one who overcomes, I will give to him hidden Of the hidden manna, and I will give him a small white stone and a new name written on the small stone, which no one knows but the one who receives it. So he's going to be, those who overcome will eat of the manna of God and they're going to receive a new name. If you read Stern's commentary, he tells you the history of this small white stone. It was used in Rome for admission to events. And in the case that's being spoken of here, the event is the world to come, the messianic banquet. And notice what he says is on the smallest white stone, a new name. Oh, that's curious. Because Jacob received a new name. When he overcame. Let's look at uh, chapter 3, verse 21. To the one who overcomes, I will give to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The one who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the communities. And so the one who overcomes will sit down with Yeshua and will reign with Yeshua. And so with all of this information, who are those descended from Jacob who are Israel? Easy those who overcome the world through faith in Messiah Yeshua. And so what is the problem? Why the letter to these Gentiles in Rome? Well, it's part of the mystery of God. It's part of the deeper meaning, the mystery of God. The sowed. And we find the answer in some of his concluding remarks in chapter 11. Listen to what he says. Again I ask, did they stumble so far as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means, uh, means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, and I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if rejection for if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Well, isn't that wonderful? So what's the problem? Well, these Romans, through their arrogance, through their boasting, through their eating, through their worship, are not making Israel envious at all. Instead, they're alienating the Jewish people by not keeping the minimum standards set forth for them in the Torah that were determined by the apostles. Remember, we read it a few weeks ago. I'll read it again. Acts chapter 15 and verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood and from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. All of these things, remember we spoke of, have to do with idol worship, which would be offensive to God and to the Jewish people. And if these Romans are doing these things, they're not a light to the Jewish people anymore, but they're a stench. They would not be able to eat with them or worship with them. Not only that, they would have become totally offensive to them with their anti-Semitism and their boasting. So these people, because of their boasting, their conceit, their eating, their worship, are not arousing the Jewish people to envy. And so Paul's reasoning is they're outside of the plan in the mystery of God. And let me say that since the Roman church won the victory through Emperor Constantine, and the church fathers continued in anti-Semitism, in anti-Torah, and anti-true Messiah. We have continued to be a stench to the Jewish people. Constantine, through the power of Rome, put an end to observance of Passover in the church by making it a crime. It was actually a crime against God in Rome. According to him, anyway. If you want to know who put an end to the Sabbath for the church, it wasn't God. You can't find that in the scripture. It was Constantine and the might of Rome. And so with Torah observance, literally a crime for those in the church, guess what? Those Nazarenes we talked about earlier disappear from history after Constantine. And anti-Semitism reigns in the church supreme to this day.